Maybe you should stop. The work can be anything from prioritizing your mental health, to decolonizing a local museum, to calling out fellow white people for transgressions, like befriending black families. So writes our guest today, Ben Hickman. He continues in a piece in Compact magazine about the American poet Audre Lorde. The trade union of British academics has transformed itself from a workers' organization concerned with labor conditions into an NGO pursuing its members' personal hobbies. This is natural because trade unions, for all their failings, can only be vehicles for narcissism if they stop concerning themselves with questions that relate to work proper, that is, the dialectic of waged and unwaged labor in its antagonism with capital. This is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, both in the UK. Today's show concerns trade union organizing and the way professional middle-class unions work, or rather don't work, and about the British Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. It's also about Audre Lorde and millennial mores and behavioral codes, and about poetry. The discussion you're about to hear is an interview recorded between Philip Cunliffe and Ben Hickman, a former colleague of Phil's from the University of Kent. Ben's a senior lecturer in the English department at Kent and also author of the aforementioned piece in Compact, Stop Doing the Work. Before I hand you over, I want to welcome new listeners and let you know about our Patreon. At least half of our output, or at least three original shows a month, are for subscribers only at patreon.com slash bungacast. What's on there? Well, just over the past month, we've had Amber Lee Frost on to discuss the crisis in the family and radical proposals for family abolition. We've had the second half of my interview with the great Russell Jacobi and our after party, where the three of us discuss whether we can discern any green shoots of utopian thinking today, as well as how individuality has become undermined, just as we've become more individualized. And we've had the concluding part of our reading club on freedom, examining Martin Hagelin's very important book, This Life. If you'd like to join us for more things like this, sign up at patreon.com slash bungacast. We'd love to see you there. And regardless, make sure to subscribe to BungaCast on your pod listening app and drop us a review wherever you get your podcast. Okay, here's the interview with Ben Hickman. Enjoy. Hi, Ben, and welcome to the show. Hi, Phil. So before we discuss the piece in Compact, I wanted to talk a bit about, um, if you could, well, if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Um, so... You're a published poet, which I think actually you may be, I think, um, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're the first, as far as we know, the first published poet we've had on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, I was expecting you to bring that up, actually. Uh, the first and probably the last. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, 
You've I had a guess, few books of poetry published, right? Yeah, my background. Yeah, my background is in poetry, and the Lord piece. The Lord is obviously a, a, a poet, or, or people think of it that way. Uh, kind of moved away from that a little bit for reasons, perhaps I'll say. Um, yeah, my. I, I guess. Uh, I mean, it goes right back, really, in a way. I I never really started reading until I was very old. Um, well, uh, old oldish uh, for starting to read anyway uh, and so I've always kind of been uh, kind of working on poetry and been into poetry um, purely because it's a short form in some ways um, and I guess you know I mean I've become disillusioned with uh, the po- well certainly with the poetry scene the Anglo-American poetry scene of late but um, you know I still have a, a, a kind of um, uh, commitment to poetry, commitment to the kind of imaginative language and what it can do, uh, even if I'm kind of a little bit uh, less uh, enthusiastic about what it can do politically uh, these days. Um, yeah. So you had, I mean, it was in in your mind, it's something that's been connected to your to your politics. Yeah, until, well, yeah, until um, perhaps three or four, five years ago, I guess, uh, that has always, uh, I, I, I don't know what, what the orthodoxy is on this these days, but certainly the last time I was involved in the UK poetry scene, that was the kind of, um, uh, the, the, the passion people had for it was that poetry was the highest form of uh, doing politics, in, certainly in, in kind of literature, as it were. Um, and there was a real belief in the sort of revolutionary power of, uh, of poetry that now seems uh, absolutely insane. Uh, now I look <laughs> back on it, um, incredibly sort of quixotic and sort of, you know, in some ways very self-aggrandizing. And I think probably, you know, that, in a way it wasn't limited to uh sort of the way people thought about poetry but we we still even sort of in the general culture have a have an exaggerated sense of the power of language perhaps um or or the power of certain kinds of language um and yeah poetry was particularly prone to that ever since well ever since i don't know the early 20th century i suppose but that's become to seem more and more ridiculous um, as uh, certainly, uh, I suppose, after 2008-9, um, that's kind of come under strain. Um, and I don't know, perhaps people are thinking about the other um, things that poetry does, um, but my, my sense is uh, not, not so much. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm, I'm kind of out of that a bit now. I haven't published a book of poems in a long time. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about it really. But that is my job. My, my job. My job title is, is sort of lecture in modern poetry. So that kind yeah. of is, that is it. Yeah. I'm just curious about what you just said about the um, how things changed in 2008, um, presumably with a financial crash. Um, hmm. So why do you think there was a more kind of hubristic, um, a hubristic, if that's the right word, uh, understanding of poetry before then in that kind of early 21st century period? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think it would also be the back end of the 20th century. I think there was, um, I think, a number of things. I mean, it, not least uh, the fact that a lot of, I mean, I guess at that period into 2010, a lot of chickens came home to roost politically, economically, and so on, uh, that had been building for a while, but that people could kind of, um, you know, just think of as, uh, until then, as a kind of just, you know, uh, a, a kind of bland sense of capitalism that could simply be uh, attacked in various ways um, that that came to seem, uh, you know, kind of unsustainable after, you know, you had the various shocks that you had uh, in that time. Um, also, you know, very, t- very tied up with the fate of universities, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that both the British and American poetry scenes, if their institutional, that that particular particular university university institutional support was lost, they would simply disappear. Um, in, yeah. in certainly in the guises that they exist in now, and I think that would probably be truer of poetry than any other art form, which is not uh, a great feeling uh, given the kind of um, uh, self-image poetry has as, as a kind of uh, medium of you know free expression and so on but yeah. you know when that when universities came under strain as well I, th- I think uh, you know the people start to think about you know actual uh, you know actual material political uh, currents that were affecting their lives in a way that they were sort of abstractions uh, perhaps yeah. in the 2000s and 1990s and so on and so, yeah, yeah you, you simply had a kind of, I suppose, uh, I mean, for me anyway, uh, th- those those kind of grand abstract sort of, you know, revolutions of the capital R uh, kind of language politics came to seem, you know, utterly unconnected to the world really at, at that point. So your view of kind of your view of politics has changed in tandem with your changing view of poetry across this period yeah i was never quite invested in in all of that business uh really i mean i was i was aware that a lot of these people who started out kind of you know announcing a strike in poetry to overthrow sort of neoliberal capitalism ended up in you know uh tenured uh positions uh in in american universities i mean I, i saw that and you know I saw, I saw, I had a sense of the actual material effect of these uh, small poetry magazines that were circulating. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I was certainly, you know, interested in all that f- for a long time. Um, and yeah, now I look back at it and it seems like a completely another age, really, to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the university's coming under strain is um, partly how we got to know each other. Um, at the University of Kent, my um, where I used to work, um, and we'll talk a bit a, a, a bit about it more because I know it's been something um, our listeners are interested in, is the travise of the UK university sector because it has been one of the most um, on it protracted labour disputes in British industrial relations. I mean, it sounds so you know, one level it sounds so absurd to talk about the higher education sector like that, but it you know, mm. nonetheless, is true. And um, that it is one of the kind of long, you know, most protracted labor disputes in recent times in Britain. 
um, and was, you know, the forerunner of the recent wave of industrial militancy. Though I'm not suggesting the two are connected, only, only the fact that one came before the other. Um, but we'll come back to that because I know it's something of interest to our listeners, and we were both involved in um, in the kind of uh, campus campus union politics and activism, uh, beginning with the great university strike um, back in uh, 2018, 19, and on since then. So we'll talk a bit about that. But uh, to talk a bit more about politics, I suppose, um, or national politics before that, you've also you were drawn in to. Um, Interparty politics through the Corbyn period, um, and were quite heavily involved at the local at the local level with the local Labour Party here in Canterbury in Kent. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, what was it about Corbyn that drew you in, and how did your you know how has your kind of uh, how have your experiences in local Labour Party politics affected your under shape? Well, I suppose shaped your understanding and outlook. Um, over the last few years and the last um, few elections, yeah, uh, yeah, drawn in is is one way of uh, putting it, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, I so I uh, I'd always been involved in sort of you know old old Trotskyist organisations in my in most of my twenties, uh, really. Um, and I, I'd kind of moved to Canterbury and uh, had kind of uh, given up on that somewhat when Corbyn came along and um, and it sort of as, as soon as Corbyn won that um, Labour leadership election, I joined the, the Labour Party. Um, you know, I was kind of into entrism and all of that, so I thought, yeah, that'll be interesting. And it was an exciting time. You know, lots of people were were kind of into it. Um, who I so you were uh, you were excited by an old an old Labour figure of the radical <laughs> left? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I not was. I'm not being I'm not being sarcastic. I mean, it, you know, no. I'm genuinely curious. As I mean, I you know, speaking for myself, I was though I wasn't you know, I'm not attached to the Labour Party for mm. um, better or for worse. I've never had any kind mm. of real attachment to them. I've never been a member of the Labour Party, um, mm. but I was heartened when Corbyn won. Partly because it was seemed to be like, um, you know, I mean, it was a shock and an upset um, to the status quo and the technocratic kind of Miliband vision of the future of the Labour Party. And that seemed to me a good thing. But also the fact that the referendum, the British referendum was on the, um, over the European Union was already on the horizon. And mm. it seemed to me a good thing that we had a traditional Eurosceptic from the Labour left um, mm. in charge of the Labour Party, the opposition party of the time. And that seemed to me like... Um, that there was uh, political possibilities there as a result of him winning that. So, yeah. I mean, that was my reason I was heartened. I didn't have, um, you know, greater hope. My, so I didn't think my hopes were that high. Nonetheless, they were still disappointed. Um, mm. But, I'm, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, what were your hopes kind of more concretely about Corbyn winning the leadership election? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's a sign of uh, where just where we are that Corbyn was exciting. I mean, you know, we shouldn't be any in any doubt that, what Corbyn represented was a very modest, uh, you know, form of social democracy that, yeah. you know, was perhaps not so unchanged from the kind of vision Labour had in the eighties, really. But uh, and and you know, Corbyn himself undoubtedly was a limited, uh, a very limited politician. There's, there's no doubt about that. But yeah, I think as you say, the context of what we'd had uh, kind of Brown Miller band and just this kind of endless continuation of um, 
demoralizing um, uh, both politicians and uh, just a party machine that was had completely become untethered from um, any uh, uh, kind of material reality. It was very exciting when you saw you know hundreds and thousands of people joining the party who would never have dreamed of doing so before. Um, uh, you know, and lots of young people. And I, uh, you know, I know looking back on that, it seems kind of like that's just something people say, but it was sort of, um, it was novel to see uh, yeah. students and young people in, um, in you know, in, in that kind of way of organising. And, you know, I remember going to the first local meeting, there were about 150 people there. Um, yeah. And the kind of, you know, the village elders of, the branch who had been meeting six or seven people every month, you know, they did their best to dampen and completely uh, sort of bore everyone in the room. Uh, but they couldn't keep hold of it really in the in the end. And it was there was there was an energy there that was, um, you know, very diffuse and very, you know, kind of incoherent in lots of ways. But it just seemed to me that anything could be, anything had to be better. I mean, it, there, there had to be yeah. potential there um, in, you know, in, in a way that there was absolutely no potential with the with the Labour Party or indeed the entire political landscape at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I, I suppose that coalition didn't hold together in, in, in a way. You know, there were people within that, I mean, I still look back at Corbyn and think that 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 was that there was a shot there at something um, positive uh, yeah. that was completely blown, and yeah. we won't have one like that again for another generation, probably. Yeah. Um, but you know, it just turned out in the end that 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 coalition of people cared about uh, other things, including, as, as you say, remaining in the European Union more than they cared about you know, having a kind of modest social democratic government, which which wouldn't have been so bad, um, given, you know, kind of where we ended up. Yeah. So how, I mean, in the, in the context of the local branch, how much do you think that was the 150 people you said you turned up for that meeting, how representative was that of um, Labour politics at the national level? in terms of the demographic of people there and the kinds of things they were concerned about? Yeah, well, I, so I went to a couple of national conferences as, as well while I was sort of involved in all this. And, it, yeah, it was very, um, very typical. You saw it everywhere. And, the, you know, the, I mean, on, on the one hand, there were people with energy and enthusiasm who weren't middle-class retirees, and that was great. But on the other hand, um, there, what I look back on now is the complete absence, of both of, the complete absence of trade unions uh, in any kind of local thinking. Yeah, and the complete absence of any interest in trade unions uh, from any of all these new members, or indeed the old, the kind of old guard. Um, they they did, did seem to be a kind of mutual acceptance that. Uh, you know, politics now takes place outside of questions of work uh, yeah. and questions of that kind of organising. Yeah. And I look back at that and I think, yeah, that that does explain quite a lot uh, about the reason that failed. 
uh, and and you know all these caricatures of it as a kind of you know middle class North London type type thing. It probably do have its roots in um, in that. Just con- I mean I I remember actually in the, in the middle of one of the elections, one one of these Labour momentum people said we should you know we should stop giving the trade unions votes. We should you know maybe we should uh, you know disaffiliate from the trade unions and stop taking their money. And it's just a kind of extraordinary thing to say, but it was you know kind of just part of the discourse at the time it wasn't it wasn't shocking at the time to most people and you look back at it and you think christ you know that that is um that's quite the take uh, <laughs> that's quite the take of a of a kind of labor politics that you you want to you want to get rid of the unions because they're all full of you know people who, whose political opinions you can't rely on or, or whatever it might be <laughs> yeah so how I mean, so I mean, this the question of work is you know the um, I mean that's the focus of your intellectual project, the book you're working on, and the piece that we want to talk about um, that was published in Compact. Um, but talking a bit of more, I mean, if we talk a bit more about this, the Labour Party connection or the Labour Party politics of this, how did your or I mean, what how did your views of politics shift in this period if at all i mean were you you know were you surprised by the way things developed or did they fulfill the kind of the grim you know i presume the grim kind of trotskyist pessimism that you would have developed from radical politics earlier in your life well certainly 2017 didn't disappoint um that was kind of marvelous in a way and, that, and that's where the opportunity was um there was even you know, even murmurings in the sort of parliamentary Labour Party that they might be able to get behind Corbyn because he's kind of been successful. And, uh, you know, that was the sort of high point. Uh, And then uh, the kind of bogging down in Brexit happened. I mean, I think that was just absolutely decisive, Uh, this this kind of... uh, I mean, partly it's this is a question of Corbyn's weak leadership. Um, Partly it's just the nature of the, the sort of coalition that formed around him. Um, and partly, you know, it's sort of manoeuvring by, you know, people within the party who it was a win-win for them because, you know, if they won, they got a second referendum, but if they lost, they'd get, that'd be the end of Corbyn and, and Corbynism, whatever that might be. And so, you know, that, that caved the whole project and it wasn't really a surprise to me that the 2019 election went the way it did because you just had to look at the Tory campaign. I mean, it was... It was so simple, and um, you know uh, the kind of shenanigans that had been. Go- I mean, people may not know about this, but the, the kind of shenanigans that were going on day after day uh, in Parliament uh, would, were a very unsavoury spectacle. And the idea that you could you could solve that by more sort of prevaricating and kind of equivocating was uh, crazy. You know, whatever else you were promising. It was clearly yeah. going to be a referendum about Brexit, uh, yeah. an election about Brexit. Yeah. So on that, I mean, for the benefit of our listeners, um, Kent is uh, the Kent, the parliamentary constituency, I should say, of Canterbury and um, Canterbury and Whitstable, um, is the only red constituency in um, this area of the country, and the other Kent parliamentary constituencies are all solid blue, rather than Labour, and so. Um, Canterbury and Whitstable is still the kind of Labour holdout in 
in this area. And um, that was, you know, they won it. They flipped it in 2017 and then won it again when the larger majority in 2019. And I remember, um, you know, the lines of students on the on the University of Kent campus in 2019 who were lining up to vote for the Labour candidate, Rosie Duffield. And that was astonishing to me because I'd never seen anything like that. Um, you know, there was a local polling, there's long been a local polling station on the university campus and, um, you know, it would always be empty at a particular polling times. But then there were just lines of students. And so I figured, you know, Labour were going to keep, we're going to keep the constituency in 2019. Um and you know, indeed, they did. Um, so, and I wondered if you had any kind of insight or, um, I suppose, uh, prognostication on the future of Labour Party politics in in Canterbury and in Kent more widely, off the back of the two thousand nineteen election. Presumably, it was the university students that won it for Rosie. Yeah, I think you would say they were decisive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you did also. I mean, you did. I think you did have. Uh, not so much, you know, kind of sort of working class people from the estates flipping from Tor- from the Tories to, to Labour at that point. But you certainly had them turn- turning out and voting for Labour in a way that also hadn't happened in previous years, I think, having sat on some of those polling stations. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they're not going to vote for her this time. <laughs> they're not going to vote for her this time. And that seat is all but lost, it seems to me. So it's yeah, going to go back to back to back to blue. Yeah, I would have thought so. Um, yeah. I mean, for all kinds of reasons, she's been a terrible MP, uh, being one of them, um, and seems to do nothing but embarrass uh, the the party locally and nationally. So it's hard to see that um, continuing. Um, and also, she she has a position on uh, gender issues that are that are kind of at odds with the way that university students often think about these things i suppose yeah so moving moving on to the question of work i suppose there is um there's the inevitable um question i suppose of industrial relations on um on campus and all the kind of roiling disputes that have happened um on campus over the last um of the last couple of years and we both had our um we both had our kind of uh, disagreements i suppose with um, strategy in respect of um the industrial dispute which has been happening between the university and college union the ucu which is the largest higher and further education union in the world um and incorporates um, academics in Britain, but also senior administrators above a certain level in British universities. And they've been in dispute with the employer in British universities um, for the last few years. So, um, as I mentioned, given the fact that our listeners have expressed an interest in some of the um, kind of campus politics associated with union activism, um, I thought it would be given the fact that we were both involved on our um, local committee at the University of Kent, our local union committee, I thought it would be um, good to talk through a bit um, our kind of uh, experience of all that. And, uh, I mean, from my point of view, like, it's been the 2018 kind of the upsurge of militancy that came in 2018 in response to the pensions and the slashing of pensions, that came to me as a tremendous kind of surprise. So I was very taken aback by the fact that you had suddenly um, 
academics willing to kind of take strike action in a way that they hadn't seemed to hadn't seemed to be willing before. Um, and my view was, you know, that there were ways to kind of harness this in a way that could make it more um, strategic and to kind of deploy it um, more effectively in the interests of um, of the you know what could be done at the local level. So my vote, you know, my involvement in the union was always a, kind of a vote of support for the local branch, which you know back then at least I was um, you know kind of it was very it was well staffed with people who had tremendous amount of experience both in terms of leading a branch but also in terms of casework on behalf of lo- individuals. Um, and I was happy to get involved at the local level, though I never had any kind of great um, admiration or respect for the national centre. The regional kind of officers that we worked with, I was always very impressed by. But in terms of the national leadership, you know, they were always um, I always had my uh, disagreements with them, both in terms of their specific policies and also in terms of their overall strategy. Um, so notwithstanding that, um, it seems to me like, you know, I suppose there are, I'd be curious to hear kind of your, your kind of how you came to be involved and your perspective on it, but also, you know, to kind of, I suppose, reflect a bit on how this dispute has evolved over the last few years, because it seems to me at the moment, like, so at the moment for the benefit of our listeners, um, the dispute, the industrial dispute has been paused um, at the behest of, I mean, there's still a bit of confusion as to who actually paused it or whether the people who paused it were authorized to pause it, but it's been paused um, uh, because there's been some kind of possible breakthrough in negotiations with the employer. And, you know, I mean, I my guess is probably whatever has been dangled in front of them is uh, probably doesn't justify pausing, but we don't know. Um, so, but it seems to me overall, like, you know, basically, um, the union has kind of uh, dragged itself, kind of bedraggled um, and exhausted into this position now where there've been significant kind of um, significant damage to members' pay, but without re- any real, um, you know, any real kind of um, upshot in terms of uh, gains from from the employer. And I remember um, something that you said once really struck me. Um, and stayed with me was when we were kind of um, complaining in a local pub about um, the kind of the um, foolishness of the national strategy. You said, well, you see, you were the union wasn't actually a union, but an NGO. And that seemed to me exactly right. Um, that in fact, you know, there was an NGO masquerading as a union effectively. So I was wondering if you could um, uh, explain for the benefit of our listeners what you meant by this, because it seemed to me very accurate. Yeah, well, well, it's it's an NGO in all in all respects, except for the fact that it does occasionally uh, make you withdraw your labour for for very little consequence <laughs> and 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 lose a good portion of your paycheck. Uh, I yeah. think I think even an NGO uh, doesn't doesn't do that. I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose there's there's a way in which, um, and I'm certainly at the national level. Um, but you know, I, th- I think in branches as well around the country, there's been a way in which uh, the increasing um, inability to organise industrial action, uh, and, and alongside that, the, the the kind of ability to win industrial yeah. disputes, there's been a direct correlation between that and the kind of 
jumping on whatever bandwagon um, and hobby of local uh, or national members might be. So that they are in many ways completely unconnected to the union. I, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you remember, Phil, we, there was a there was a branch, it was in the middle of lockdown, I think, there was a branch vote on supporting the kind of American protests against, about George Floyd, uh, yeah. I, I recall, in one of, <laughs> one of those meetings. Um, and, you know, a terrible thing, obviously, but terrible things happen around the world all the time. They're not necessarily all connected to university industrial disputes and those kinds of things uh, have have risen and risen um and they're, they're, they're a compensation an overcompensation for the union's increasing inability to act as a union yeah uh which has frayed for for many reasons um partly just because academics are terrible but also because of lockdown because of just a, a kind of general um, refusal to think about how academics might withdraw their labour usefully. Yeah. Um, all these things that are kind of, you know, basic uh, sort of things you would expect a union to think about. Yeah. Uh, they can't do because uh, there's, I mean, my sort of prejudice about this, my hunch is that it's because there's no trade union tradition there. And yep. there's just an inability to really understand what a trade union is among most academics. Um, because on the one hand, the UCU is very, it's a very powerful union. It's, it's the only one in the sector, unlike so a lot of kind of in the public sector as well as the private sector, a lot of, um, there's a lot of splintering between different unions and yep. sort of, uh, so, you know, things become much harder to coordinate. But with UCU, it's the only one, and it has very high membership. Um, but it's a complete shambles, um, yeah. as as we're seeing right now. I mean, it's it's just going to announce another loss now, um, and yeah. people have been out on strike for you know days and days, lost hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And yeah, uh, I I mean, I think there there is going to come a point where it it comes to the point of no return, and the union will collapse uh, under its own kind of. Uh, dysfunction really it seems to me we're getting close to that point but yeah I don't know I don't know what you reckon of it yeah I mean I I think what I share your um I share your skepticism and I suppose my you know what I couldn't get what I couldn't understand was I suppose the in trying to kind of under trying to get to grips with why there was so many kind of systematic or repeated failures and lack of basic um you know, lack of basic thought, it seems to me, so much was um, so tokenistic and uh, symbolic in terms of the kinds of struggles that were waged and the politics, um, you know, the politics of the union were um, were terrible at the, at the national level, um, not least, you know. So the, new, the kind of the, I remember, I mean, this in particular struck with me was, um, was when... Um, so Joe Grady, the uh, general secretary of the union, called the government Nazis, um, yeah. and it was. Um, it's. I mean, apart from the kind of you know uh, absurdity of you know that it was just extreme and ridiculous, it was also just bad politics in the sense that she, you know, at the same time as the government was um, kind of manipulating the um, the pension regulator and ultimately in charge of the pension regulator. 
and also in a position perhaps to step in, to wade into the industrial dispute in favor of the union and against the employer, given the particular kind of quasi-public status of British universities, to um, close that option off by cast, you know, kind of calling this shambolic and incompetent government of Tories, you know, calling them Nazis. It just spoke to that um, symbolic kind of the excess mm. symbolic. I'm trying to avoid using virtue signaling, but it's uh, impossible <laughs> to avoid. Just the virtue signaling kind of politics of the union. Um so you know that really that stayed with me um well that was at the same that was at the same time as well that they would uh, the our union for reasons that are still obscure to me were were demanding more and more emergency police powers were surrendered to these nazis which indeed seems yeah like quite an incoherent uh, yeah during during the lockdown and i mean we were both um you know we were both very skeptical of the position the union took in lockdown with its with the tremendous enthusiasm with which it backed all the extreme measures and particularly in um you know kind of um uh, being reluctant and avoiding the trying to get students back in campus and trying to teach students face to face and that seemed given the fact that students were the least among the least vulnerable to um to the to the virus that seemed to me um, bad on so many levels, not only for the sake of education, but also just out of sheer kind of self-interest in terms of the profession itself, given the fact that we were handing, um, you know, handing essentially the our, um, our jobs on a silver platter for management to rationalize and to deploy new kind of learning technologies and the rest of it. And that seems to be indeed, you know, um, what happened as a result. I suppose I wanted to, um, off the back of that, I wanted to kind of, um, to, and by way of entering the discussion on, on Audre Lorde, I wanted to ask kind of how that, if there is, what the concept of work is that, um, you know, that underlies that particular vision of education so that you're willing, you know, that you would be willing to um, think that it could, that, university education could be done remotely without any real damage to it mm. that the vision of work that makes that doesn't see the risk to your own kind of material self-interest in substituting mm. or the greater reliance on technology there and also you know how that vision of work may explain things about the flawed industrial strategy adopted by the union in the dispute so i mean I, i'm hoping that they're not that's not three questions but one question <laughs> um but it's basically what is that how far this there's a concept of work there and how far that might you know if there's anything you can kind of tell us about that from the from the study that you've been conducting about different concepts mm. of work yeah, I haven't really thought through the connection there, but I, I mean, I suppose the immediate thing that sort of springs to mind is a, a sort of understanding of work that um, is non-social, I suppose, or, or the removal of the sort of social content of work, which turns out to actually be very important to what to what a work is. But I suppose the the kind of the Zoom um, uh, sort of fanatics within the union. Um, Really, I mean, I kind of, I, in, in a way, I don't really care what the, the union thinks about uh, a national issue like that. I don't, I, I don't necessarily, uh, beyond its impact on on the kind of its its members, I, I don't yeah. really 
care. Um, but in this case, that was all it did. It simply took a, a position um, that was informed by the extent to which it was a virtue rather than giving any thought to what it, impact it might have on organizing. Yeah. You know, what happens when your workforce becomes atomized and outsourceable uh, and don't talk to each other anymore and don't meet and all of these things, you know, they gave no, absolutely no thoughts to that whatsoever. Um, and just thought about it purely as a kind of, I mean, not even as a political thing, but purely as a kind of moral question. And um, yeah. I, I don't need my unions to have moral thoughts, really. Um, so, but behind that was this, was a sense of, um, you know, one of the kind of constant uh, refrains in that period was, you know, uh, online teaching is is teaching. Uh, you know, this kind of idea that, the, that you didn't lose anything from, it was just a different form of delivery. It, you know, you were yeah. still in the seminar room. Uh, it's just that everyone was online and um, yeah. people couldn't talk to each other properly or see each other and uh, they were in their bedrooms and all of this. And it was actually the same. It was an illusion to think that that, that was any different to sitting in a room uh, with actual people uh, and looking at them in the eye. That, that that was an illusion. So I suppose at the at the root of that is this idea that um, you know there's a there is a, there is a version of working. So the, I mean it's kind of implicit in the idea of working from home. I suppose there's a version of that that you can kind of see that as sort of utopian in a way because you're sort of self-employed at that point. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, everyone, eh, you know, even even I was sort of, you know, I thought, God, you know, I, th- I saw a lot of potential in the, lock- in the lockdown. You know, I thought, you know, state of emergency, people, you know, might see what work is, <laughs> what work is when, when it's kind of completely disrupted in this way or whatever. Yeah. But what we actually got was just more of the same and a deepening, um, a deepening kind of, uh, sort of confer- convergence of work with um, really, I mean, I, I'd say, the, I'd say my, my sense is that we're getting closer and closer to what, to wage work becoming more and more like housework, which is to say delimiting, meaning, yeah. meaning unlimited, solitary, uh, completely, almost completely impossible to organise, um like you know all it you know subject to forms of self-discipline guilt all the kind of things that that come with housework uh, are, are kind of being imported into waste work and and this idea i mean you know this this kind of flip that people did where you where you don't think of it as working from home but living at work yeah well, it seems uh, correct and 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 seems to bring us closer and closer to, to the kind of disempowered um, forms of housework that 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 perhaps existed uh, and obviously still exist, but um, you know uh, were, were kind of more universal perhaps uh, before the nineteen seventies or something. Yeah. So that's happened, but there's a, the the kind of illusion that that UCU and a load of academics had, and in some ways, you know, they were correct if they lived in these nice detached houses that many of them do, you know, that, that, that they could kind of live a kind of autonomous um, existence with a, with a proper work-life balance. And these are all very desirable things, but, um, you know, <laughs> it wasn't the same work. Um, and you just need to ask a student for that, you know, yeah. whether it was the same work. 
And I think probably Lord is uh, is is sort of on a similar trajectory there. This kind of appropriation of this word um, to mean a kind of solitary, uh, narcissistic pursuit um, that you can you can still valorize as something you know that that has that sort of rich tradition like work does. Yeah, so you said so. The piece that you wrote for Compact on Audre Lorde was um, called "Stop Doing the Work," which is a great title. And I was trying to think. I mean, when did I first um, encounter this idea of do the work? And I think so. I mean, I encountered Audre Lorde some years ago. I was going to see um, a documentary about her life. So she's one of these kind of names, you know, that float around in, you know, the radical ether that you come across at some point, I suppose, if you're interested in radical politics. So I was vaguely familiar with her or vaguely aware of her, at least. And I went to see a movie about her at an East End cinema as part of some LGBT film festival. And I remember in the documentary that Lord was saying um, how she supported excluding white women from black women's meetings. There was an interview with her in the documentary where she said this. And I was left wondering whether I was the only one in the cinema who thought that that sounded like recreating segregation and just thought it was sounded, you know, insane. Um, mm. Mm. And I don't, you know, I still wonder to this day if I was the only one in the cinema. Maybe not, you know, maybe there were others. But obviously, um, you know, we nothing was nothing was said um, about it afterwards. So nothing was raised about it in the kind of collective discussion afterwards. So it was just taken as as given that um, that kind of um, compartmentalization could be um, could serve, you know, radical purposes. Um, and then I came across this idea of doing the work that was definitely on Twitter. And it was mm, done in mm. that kind of, it was definitely in that hectoring thing of um, that I'm not here to educate you is probably the thing it always, <laughs> always conjoined yeah. to. I'm not here to kind of um, explain or enlighten you about, um, you know, these radical ideas, do the work. It's up to you to, it's, or, you know, it's up to the kind of the person, the other person to um, rectify themselves. So, Tell us, can you tell us a bit about what doing the work means in that kind of, um, in the uh, outlook of radical, mm. radical identity politics or the kind of Lordian politics that you talk about in the piece? Yeah, so I suppose sort of a similar relationship with the way that um, the UCU uh, union has, has kind of transformed itself. Uh, yeah. So this idea of, so the idea of doing the work as a as a kind of um, I, I mean it's, it's a very mysterious word, but the, the idea that doing the work might involve things like you know self care, reflecting on this and that about whatever kind of biases you might have, or um, undergoing therapy. These these all might be forms of doing the work, um, and the, the growth of that is in direct correlation to the untethering of radical politics from actual workers and um, i think yeah. that would be a, yeah. that would be a crude way of putting it but that would be about fair uh and yeah i, I spent a long time trying to work out where it, exactly where it come from um so you have these so the first kind of appearance of it is, is with these russian mystics who talk about doing the work in a sort of uh kind of mystical uh, religious sense you sort of do the work um, to get closer to God and stuff like that, and I totally, I totally think that is part of the the kind of 
etymology of the whole the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but I suppose today it's I mean it it concerns me because um, of the particular both in the way that it appropriates work. Yeah. Uh, and, and kind of excuses people from thinking of other fo- other forms of work. Yeah. Um, and allows them to kind of take on a certain radical chic or, or, or something similar. Um, but also because of the particular way in which it distorts work and the particular version of work that it um, has, uh, I suppose. Uh, and again, it's all to do with, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's a way of conceptualizing work wh- whereby you, you just ignore <laughs> all the things that are important about work. The fact yeah. that you do it with other people, the fact that it might involve capital or, or something yeah. like that. All of these things are just kind of excused because, you know, really the important work is the work that you would do individually. You know, you may tell other people to do the work, but then they yeah. have to do the work. There's, there's no kind of, <laughs> there's no collective here. You, you just sort of, you might hector other people, but that's their business to do the work. Yeah. Uh, but of course, what they mean by the work is, um, you know, you need to believe in everything I believe. Uh, and yeah. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you that. So yeah. you better get you better get on this reading list. And um, yeah. yeah, so it's it's a very impoverished. I, it's, but you you hear it a, a lot in all kinds of contexts. And I think we would be we'd be better off having a much more precise definition of what work is that wouldn't be limited to wage ways for labor but it, it certainly would not include um you know having a bath with candles on or whatever it might involve <laughs> doing the work yeah <laughs> well truly i mean that counts yeah. that counts no indeed yeah yeah So it's a middle, so it's kind of, I mean, would this be stretching the point, but it's like kind of the middle class email cast version of work, like you say, where kind of it's anything yeah. that's kind of oriented around the self, whether it's like um, earning, mm. it might be earning money with your employer, or it might be kind of going to the gym, being mm. virtuous, a healthy person, like you say, kind of, I don't know, um going to see a documentary as part of an LGBT film festival or whatever, anything that kind of um, mm. improves the, in the kind of the, uh, the virtue of the individual that is, that is work. Would that be right? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I mean, my, my sense of this, I, I mean, you'd, you'd know better how it sort of plays out in other contexts, but my sense of it is that it, it's, it's modeled on the idea that making art is work. Right. So it's it's a kind of extension of art making to life. Um, yeah. And often there's there's you know those two things are simultaneously held. So uh, so Lord holds this. She, she's very keen on this idea that um, her poetry and her writing are are real forms of labour. Yeah. Um, and I, I think if you ask most people, uh, most artists, most people in the humanities, whether it was, they would say yes. Um, and there are reasons for saying that, but I, I also think that is uh, entirely um, self-flattering and um, self-aggrandizing. 
And that's kind of one of the things that the book charts is this sort of uh, that kind of, um, I mean, it's like, it's sort of, what do they say? Um, that kind of apophatic, like this, this kind of this negative, what, what, how work is negatively shown uh, in lots of these figures on, across the 20th century. And uh, Lord is one of them. Um, yeah. So tell us, what, why is Lord so important to this kind of changing understanding of what work means? Why is she so important to it specifically? Well, I yeah, when, when I sort of started looking into to Lord, I mean, I was kind of aware of her use of that phrase, the work. Um, I mean, I was really sort of thinking of her in relation to illness to begin with and kind of came into it thinking I'm not at all in, intending to sort of um, think about her in the way I ended up doing. Uh, but I, I suppose, I mean, in Lord's case, she she's very important in the sense that she, I mean, I think I'd say in that essay that she, she presents us with the, the kind of associate professor as, as the subject of history. Yeah. And so it's, it's a very influential way of thinking about labor that is entirely modeled on the arts and humanities. Yeah. And that is, uh, you know, I'm sure that makes you feel great if you work in the arts and humanities. Uh, but yeah. if you want to organize a class of people who work, it probably won't be so good. Yeah. And that's, that's why she's sort of uh, important, incredibly influential, incredibly influential, not least because she just, she just flatters people who are like her yeah. and allows them to think of themselves as bloody Che Guevara or something when they're you know, writing their, their next article. Yeah. And I just find it ludicrous. Yeah. So you say work, you say specifically in your piece, work functions as a dissolvent, blending the political and the personal. Hmm. Meaning that this, um, that you're, like you say, so any kind of, um, any, anything you do essentially becomes politically meaningful as an individual, as this kind of middle class kind of, um, hmm individual academic or intellectual of some kind yeah there's been this slippage this this sort of discovery in in the the 60s that everything is political yeah. uh, which is correct uh, you know that is right um there's been a slippage from that into everything is equally political uh, and therefore <laughs> therefore and you know you know many of these um sort of uh, followers of Lord would, would identify as Marxists, so they don't they, they don't want to give up on the idea of work, yeah. Um, or they do want to give up on the idea of work, but they still want to claim it, uh, and that's kind of what you see happening. Even though Lord has really no interest in Marx uh, at all, um, yeah. and if she did, she wouldn't she wouldn't have you know spoke about work like this. Yeah. So yeah, you you just you just see this kind of um, uh, sort of nothingy activity just becomes you know work and therefore you know we can we can kind of compare ourselves you know we can think about ourselves as starting the next russian revolution or something yeah you made so you made this point and i thought it was very good so about and particularly like you say the self-flattering aspect of it for academic activism and academic rad radicalism where you mm. say she was a master of this tactic identifying her own struggles against conference organizers with, for example, armed resistance to apartheid. Um, mm. So that... Um, yeah, she literally does that. Yeah. Uh, it's just incredible. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's astonishing. 
um, and, you know, kind of absurd at the same time. And um, the conceit of it is amazing. But the and the basic move, like and if and I just I want to make sure, like we're I I understand and hopefully um you know that our, that uh, it's clear to our listeners that the the move that allows you to do that in your in what you're saying is the move that allows you to say that your kind of um spat with conference organizers is on the same moral plane as um, armed resistance to apartheid that that allows you by you can do that because. Your whatever you do, the work um, or the virtue of what you do as an individual. Um, so, and if everything is equally this given the same kind of weight, political weight, mm. um, this is and doing the work means like all of these, all of these different things interchangeably become kind of made uh, made mm. the same. This is what allows that slippage to take place. Is well, that it's right even worse. Something missing. I mean, it is that, but it's also something worse than that, which is that the, the kind of particular intellectual labour that academics do and artists do, and you know, people sort of adjacent to that do, um, is the best and the most revolutionary form of work because it's it's the work because you can work on people's consciousness, and yeah. this is the understanding that we've we've come to we've come to get about what politics is it's it's kind of the the intellectual is some sort of uh kind of thing that can get inside people he- people's head and rewire their consciousness and and yeah. so if we get that right uh, the revolution will follow yeah uh, which of course you know you completely um you know you've got a shortcut around all these awkward things like organizing and withdrawing your labor and all of these things um yeah. because in fact it's the highest form of labor um, yes. or, or at least the most radical form of labor. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, your, your work, if you, if you do something that your, your boss wouldn't like, that's an incredibly subversive act. So you make the point, and I feel this, uh, I mean, this kind of is clear in that kind of the hectoring, you know, that hectoring point about doing the work, I guess, you know, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's interesting on so many levels. So when it's kind of, uh, insisted upon across social media when a radical kind of uses it to berate somebody who is, um, you know, whom, with whom they disagree in some way or who seem mm. to be wrong-headed or, um, you know, kind of a Nazi or whatever. So go do the work is to say, I'm not going, it's kind of absolves you of making an effort to convince somebody. Mm. Um, it also kind of automatically, I suppose, elevates you in some kind of moral hierarchy because you're, um, your you know understanding is uh, superior to the person whom you're saying has to do work in order mm. to reach the level that you're at, and you mm. make I mean so I mean uh, you make the point in the piece that this Lord's idea of doing the work helps explain things about liberal authoritarianism today, um, mm. and I wondered if you can tell us a bit more about that because that's the that's the way yeah. I think of it in terms of that kind of moral yeah. injunction and assumption of superiority, but I think there's more to it than that as well. Yeah, so that so that conception of work is a kind of emptying out of work, but it's also uh, it, it's a it's an emptying out of politics as well. So if you think of politics, which is what people often mean, you know, do the work when people people when you get it in that context where you know someone says something untoward or you know or, or whatever it might be, they're they're in, they're enjoined to do the work. Yeah, um, implying that 
political political thinking, political conflict, political development, whatever it might be, is just a form of, uh, you know, kind of, um, I mean, there's nothing political about work in and of itself. Yeah. It, it's, it's a process, you know, it's just a yeah. process when you think of it in those terms. So if you just say, say politics is that, it just becomes a kind of training. You know, it's just like, yeah. you know, they, they, there's, they, there can't possibly be disagreements. There can't possibly be, you know, material conflicts here because the only answer is that someone hasn't done the work. And yeah. Yeah. So, so someone has not properly uh, trained themselves and prepared themselves for the proper position on this. Yeah. And so it's a completely apolitical way of thinking about um, any of these things. So, you know, so if, you know, if there's a racist around, the answer is that, that they do the work or you tell them to do the work rather yeah. than, you know, kind of any, any, any political answer uh, to these questions. It's just, you know, the work. It's like working in a factory. You just do it, you know, and, it, yeah. and it, it's just an automatic process um, that, you know, is completely uncontested, doesn't involve any thinking you know you think about all those things that work we might associate with work they're you know they're very um it's a very depoliticized way of thinking about what are really political matters yeah and i was fascinated i mean i one piece one point you made in in the essay which i thought was um you know so precisely targeted and also important was when you make the point that responding to you know, so this kind of this self-involved narcissism where, like you say, um, you know, taking a bath with candles and self-care is also doing the work as well as participating in a, you know, consciousness raising workshop or whatever. That's also doing the work. And you say that calling that kind of behavior snowflakey or calling people to do that snowflakes misses the point. Um, and I thought that was really that's really important. And if you could explain mm. why, why does that miss the point to say it's snowflakey? Well, because, uh, so, uh, I suppose, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, it's important to say, I mean, I think, you know, self-care, however, you, whatever word you want to call that, I think it's very important people have bars of candles on. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that's good on them. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, why it has to be instrumentalized in, as, a, as a kind of form of labor is completely beyond me. And it seems to, seems to imply that people need to earn these things if, yeah. they, if they're going to do them. But the, the kind of, yeah, the instrumentalism is that there's, I mean, there's a way in which the various uh, sort of subjects uh, or the various kind of issues around which one may do the work it becomes a matter of brand, becomes a matter of personal branding, effectively. Yeah. So, you know, the, kind, the idea of, um, so you might call someone out for to, and you know urge them to do the work, but what you're really doing is just signalling to you know perhaps uh, a kind of Ivy League employer that you know you're you know you're you're not only right thinking, but you know you've got a profile for this kind of thing, and it it just it's a way of um, you know it's a way of sort of transforming complaint into a kind of cultural cachet, I suppose. Um, yeah, and and in that sense, that it kind of is work. It kind of is work, you know. It is, yeah. it is, it is networking, but that's not really what they mean. So the snowflake thing is to underestimate it's um, the kind of the ruthless careerist mindset 
that's behind it. Is that the is that the point? I think in many cases, yeah. I think that would. That, I mean, certainly. Uh, in I mean, I don't really follow social media these days, but certainly you see that um, a, a great deal. I'm sure uh, that's not to say that it's sort of insincere or or whatever. Although in many cases, I think it is. But just that there is, we live in a kind of uh, landscape where there, there, there are there are gains to be made. <laughs> uh, so going through this kind of performance, and yeah. um, people, you know, there are some people who are not so silly about that. So one, um, one, just a final point on Lord before we talk about the um, the book project of which. Um, from which the essay was um, extracted, um, you make the point in the f- that what kind of um, what uh, impacted Lord's outlook on on uh, the working class or the American working class at least was when she saw um, uh, the so-called hard hat protests. I think they were called when the construction mm. workers came out for Nixon against students mm. in the early seventies. And you say mm. from then on she saw them nothing as much as. Um, you know, she just saw workers as kind of a political obstacle. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, that so there. So the hard hat riots were these kind of this clash between uh, New York construction workers and um, kind of flag burning anti war students. Uh, I think mainly medical students, uh, as, I, as I remember rightly. Um, and Lord wrote a poem about this, uh, and you know it was a, a kind of what you'd expect. It was kind of you know this this what's this sort of uh, what was it people always said about Brexit? This, this kind of self harm, this kind yeah. of act of self harm, or you know, I mean, it was that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I, I I couldn't say exactly whether Lord ever um, had a, any faith in kind of constituencies like construction workers or or trade unions at all because you know she had no real dealings with them and uh, as far as I can tell she showed no interest in them uh, but you know in a way she's typical of that she's typical of uh, that the kind of accelerated move of a sort of soft left progressive politics liberalism from uh, workers uh, yeah. which that incident um, is kind of a touchstone for. So that's when Nixon sort of starts capturing these kind of blue-collar uh, workers. Um, and you see that right up to, you know, you can read that into sort of uh, American politics ever since. Yeah. Um, this, this kind of untethering of um, blue-collar workers from the Democratic Party, I suppose. Yeah. Case. Yeah. Um, so the Lord essay or Lord is one figure, in this, as part of this wider book project of um, how um, our view of work has changed. So could you give us um, a kind of a brief summary of the purpose of the book and um, some of the other figures that you look at it? Uh, sorry, some of the other figures you look at in the book. So, yeah, so it's, uh, so it's a book uh, about American culture and labour, uh, from from the last hundred years, so about nineteen twenty to now. So, from modernism, when you start to get this um, uh, sort of artists claiming this this idea that they're they're makers of objects and therefore craftsmen and therefore sort of workers, yeah. Um, and they have their reasons for doing that because you know workers are at their absolute the height of their heroic um, 
status at that point. You just had the Russian yeah. Revolution, and you know, so they do that, and then you start to get proletarian realism, and some of the some of the things you'd expect um, are in there. Um, and I suppose there's two halves to the story. One is one is kind of um, the way in which uh, American artists and thinkers have um, obscured work, uh, yeah. both appropriated and obscured work, uh, and ways in, and you know the other half is people who have in fact been very articulate uh, about work uh, and very kind of brilliant and illuminating about it so so lord is in the first first category obviously um but also i mean i'm thinking also in that category of people like john cage the composer john cage um the kind of german expat hannah arendt people might know uh and then in the kind of people who are who are kind of uh articulating the changing world of work so obviously in the 20th century you get all these um huge shifts in in the nature of work uh, and there are various artists that that sort of chart that um perhaps sometimes in in unexpected places so i've got quite a kind of admiring sort of chapter on jackson pollock for example um yeah as someone who uh you know is a kind of casualty of um the decline of the blue collar worker um and you know has very interesting things to show uh, about all of that can you, so those can are the kind us, of two can, can you tell us a bit more about jackson pollock specifically because um not being you know not being particularly uh my speaking for myself not being particularly mm. familiar with um with that moment in american art history um and obviously pollock is famous for the very kind of the messy and impressionistic um multicolored paintings um so what what is it about pollock's work that's so illuminating in contrast to um to lord's kind of um narcissism and self-involvement so pollock so yeah so pollock's famous for those uh, drip paintings um yeah and uh, you know you look at those and you think well you know they're not saying how could they possibly be saying anything you know they're abstract and yeah. um you know you, you kind of wonder about that but I suppose, I mean, on the one hand, Pollock has no um, theoretical or political abstractions that he's pursuing in that work. Uh, and I'm increasingly persuaded that that is correct and, and, and the way artists should go about it. Uh, so he's just, I suppose what's interesting about Pollock is, uh, so he, he's painting at a moment when uh, uh, the, of what's kind of historically known as the, we're seeing the feminization of work. Uh, the kind of, I think it's around when Pollock's doing those drip paintings that you get this flip from there being more white collar workers to, to blue collar workers in the US at that point. Yeah. You know, a key moment. Um, you get the entrance of uh, women into the workforce and um, just all, all kinds of tensions, uh, sort of demographic tensions, intra workplace tensions around all of this. And Pollock, you know, in some ways, Pollock is just a kind of, you know, showing a sort of hurt masculinity would be one reading of it. Yeah. Um, but also he's he's kind of, those drip paintings contain real elements of DIY. And it's also the time you're starting to get the invention of DIY. So yeah. DIY gets invented because men aren't doing blue collar jobs anymore and they need to feel manly. So they yeah. build a bird table or whatever it is they do yeah. 
Uh, and so there's a real correlation between Pollock's work and, and the emergence of DIY um, and all the kinds of really sort of brilliant and ingenious and kind of enterprising sort of manual things Pollock is doing in those paintings um, is really tied to that. And it really, it sort of really charts the kind of, uh, the, the kind of effect um, of the kind of changing workplace on, on a certain v- brand of masculinity, which in Pollock's yeah. case was, was a very fragile and um, uh, complicated one. Uh, but it also is is kind of um, you know the, the kind of things that are going on there can illuminate uh, hopefully can illuminate that work as more than just a load of uh, abstract surface uh, drips as as people sometimes think of them I suppose. Yeah, and you mentioned um, Hannah Arendt, um, who you might be more familiar to, um, or whose work at least might be more familiar to um, to our listeners as a political. You know, she's kind of got renowned as a um, as a political theorist, and she's had something of a moment in um, in American political theory over the last ten, fifteen years or so. Um, but you put her in the kind of you put her in the same camp as Audre Lorde in terms of obfuscating <laughs> rather than illuminating. Yeah, and that briefly, sense. briefly tell us what the why well, what the reason is. Well, in that, yeah, I mean, on the on the question of work, yeah, they're very different in lots of other ways, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, so Arendt has a whole theory of uh, work and indeed of what she calls the human condition. She has a book, uh, quite uh, misjudged title, uh, of the human condition. And at, at the centre of that is, is a theory of work. Yeah. Um, so she makes this distinction between uh, labour, work and action. Uh, and labor is the kind of thing um, animals do. Yeah. And it's kind of her way of saying, uh, you know, Marx was wrong in yeah. uh, valorizing labor and seeing labor as a potential because labor is really for animals. Yeah. Uh, so there's a kind of way in which that's entering into a sort of Cold War uh, discourse and she becomes a kind of vanguard of this sort of, you know, of a certain kind of anti-communism, I suppose. Um, but at the at the back of it is this sort of really just a fear of work, and she describes work as this sort of dark, this dark hidden place that you go to, and there's a kind of fear of work yeah. uh, that's kind of really operating in those sort of Cold War tropes, I suppose. Yeah, and therefore doesn't see its centrality to to human life and its necessary part of politics. Is would that be the the implication? Well, again. Yeah, again, she's not at all interested in the social aspects of work, which are, are really the definitive things about it. <laughs> she's, yeah. She sees that as this thing people do behind closed doors in the dark and on their own and sort of, yeah. you know, and, you know, the fact that she, I mean, she even uses this word. Um, uh, she calls it animal labor rands. So the, the animal who labors. So, of course, you know, when you start thinking of it like that, you remove all the social elements, like the fact that, you know, you might be put to work by, you know, a, a kind of accumulation of sur- surplus capital or, or whatever it is, or the fact you might work alongside other people, or the yeah. fact that, you know, you might be supported by the housework of your wife or whatever it is, you know, she forgets yeah. about all these things. Yeah. Um, and so it's an ob- obfuscation, I, I, as, as I see it, yeah. Yeah. So when is the... Um... When is the book out and what's it called? Oh, Christ. Well, uh, I'm still 
finishing it off. Um, it's going to be done uh, by the beginning of summer. It's called, I can't actually remember, I think it's called um, American Culture and Labour 1920 to 2020. So it kind of ends with COVID and the sort of automation debates around all of that. Um, when in fact we are, um, when in fact, the, you know, uh, as you were saying, we are reduced to um, to uh, working in the dark with the door closed. In, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. In the private yeah. kind of sphere, exactly as a rent envisaged. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, uh, perhaps he is onto something in some ways. Um, <laughs> socially enforced, of course, but yeah. Yeah. Um, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Um, we'll have to have you back on when the book is um, when the book is out, and um, perhaps uh, talk about it in more depth. I think it'll be interesting to hear more about um, Arendt um, in particular, given you know kind of her pallid kind of status as a political theorist. Her the oversight of work, you know, that seems to me very important in terms of um, uh, political American political ideas. And so I think it's probably worth exploring some more. So, yeah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Lovely to, lovely to be here.